Welcome to Design Talk. In the next few episodes, we'll be looking at the design ecosystem for new products and new ventures, working across the product team interface, understanding how to work with teams from the outside in and the inside out. Uh, Stephen Keenan, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you've been involved in a couple of startups. Could you tell us a little about yourself? Um, you took a, a kind of circuitous route to coding. You didn't start off coder initially, did you? No, not at all. Um, I would say, though, going back, my interest in computers was, was pretty, from when I was pretty young. Um, I never would say I've got into coding as such when I was younger, but I was always like trying to push stuff as, as far as I could. Um, was like your, your your man for torrents and all that sort of thing. Um, so I did I did always love I did always love computers, but I guess I lived I didn't have any influence in computers growing up. Like mum, dad, like you know none of that. Uh, no real family members in it either. So I didn't really know much about the space. Um, and it wasn't really till college that you know you started hearing the words tech and etc. And I think at the end in fourth year I did um, one module on. Well, part of it was coding, um, and and yeah, I just just really really enjoyed it, and that was probably like the, the start of of me going down that route. Um, but but, it, I, but it hasn't been sorry interrupting you there. But it hasn't it wasn't an obstacle to you getting into a tech career, was it? No, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, like the, I guess the thing about coding is you could pro, you can nowadays as well you can sort of pick it up within a pretty short period of time and get going in a at a relatively junior role. Um, you know, there's 101 different boot camps out there for you to do and they're well accepted across like employers and, and people are happy to hire off them so you know the barrier there to get into tech if you're looking to get on the engineering side is is pretty low um and you know if you're coming from business or whatever there's there's multiple business roles you can get involved in as well and for you yourself you took a postgraduate uh, diploma in coding after graduating yeah, it ended up being a master's. Yeah, I went on to, to do the master's part of it. Um, and yeah, it, it was good. Again, it was it was super intensive. It was really just to churn out software engineers. So, you know, if you went through a typical CS undergrad, you would be doing, you know, a lot more maths, probably touching on a bit more computer engineering, like the, maybe the fundamentals of how, of how computers work. Uh, whereas... You know, my 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 post my postgrad was was very focused on churning out software engineers, like how to build digital products was basically what we were what we were doing. You've ended up being an entrepreneur. You've you and you're start you're you're involved in a startup at the moment. Yeah, as I said earlier, like I'd, I'd sort of always been like tinkering around with different things, never in much of a digital sense. Had a had an idea, had an idea when I was younger around a mental health play, um, sort of pursued that for a while, which was a great learning experience. Learned a ton from it. Didn't really build anything meaningful out of it um, in terms of product wise, or we didn't get you know many at any users really. Um, but it was a good experience. Um, but I think you know coming that was partially why I went into into the tech side because you know we were pretty much just business people trying to build a, a tech product, which is never necessarily a, a good thing to do. Nowadays, it's a bit easier. This was a while back now. The backstory of how I've landed on what I'm working on now, the company's called Filter. Um, so we help a, a respiratory patient called, the, which they suffer from a condition called COPD, which is essentially a degenerative respiratory condition. So you might be very familiar with asthma. Um, it's like that, but 100 times worse. Um, so it's not really like it. What ends up happening is um, people normally get it from either smoking, 
um, exposure to some sort of chemicals or irritants. You can be born with it, small percentage of people born with it, um, and then you can actually get it as a result of maybe having a very bad infection. Um, so what it is, it's eventually your, your lungs stop really working and they stop working over time. And it's horrible to condition. It often means you get repetitive infections, you're in hospital all the time, and ultimately you'll, you'll probably die from it. Um, so my uncle has had this condition for 20 or so years. Um, and four years ago, he ended up being permanently hospitalized. So he was your absolute base case of a COPD patient. Um, now, he's a pretty interesting and colorful character. And up until that date, he didn't really care about his condition. He just sort of played on with life, um, didn't really manage it very well. But I guess sitting on your back, you know, lying in a hospital bed, saying a, doc, telling, a doctor telling you you're never going to leave is a bit of a wake-up call. And it was. He sort of just, he ended up turning his life around. And, you know, fast forward four years later, he's swimming, he's cycling, he's setting up a business. He's sort of defied many of the medic, what medical sort of narrative would say is possible for the stage um, uh, that he has of COPD. And I took a lot of interest in this, uh, both from a personal point of view, obviously the, the, the personal connection, but also was interested in actually how we did it. Um, so we had a conversation, I'd say, yeah, two and a bit years ago, just before COVID. Uh, I'll never forget it. I think he called me, he lives in the Philippines now. He called me at something like 10, 11 o'clock at night, uh, European time. And we ended up staying on the call until about seven or eight in the morning, my time. Uh, so it was daytime for him, but so he didn't mind. And yeah, I guess that was what sort of spurred on like, wow, okay, I didn't know anything really about the condition. I went off, looked at it, super underserved. Like, I mean, it's the third leading cause of the world, was a death in the world and most people don't even know what it is. Um, and as a result, there aren't a lot of therapeutics or medication or there isn't a whole lot of information available to these people. Uh, and that was really the, the start of the journey, I guess. You know, we started off very much um, an analytics play. Uh, so we were using a lot of sensor data and trying to predict when these people were going to get worse. Um, and over the course of, you know, the past number of months, year and a bit, um, we've morphed into more of a psychology play. Um, so, you know, we've onboarded a number of users, you know, hundreds of users have gone through our products. We've talked to thousands of patients. And one thing that kept on coming up was they really struggled with the mental health side of having the condition. Um, subsequently, about 60% of people actually that have COPD have anxiety and around 40% of them have depression and versus other chronic conditions is disproportionately high. Um, so that was, that was really what spurred us to, to work and change the product to what it is today, which is essentially trying to help individuals change how they view their condition. So we have a lot of like CBT, a lot of breath work. So reducing that anxiety to then eventually get on to actually managing the physical side of their of their of their condition. So like taking medication, exercise, et cetera. Because ultimately the way we see it now and the way, you know, I think a lot of patients will see it was if you're not in the good headspace, you're never going to get to managing the condition effectively. You see, you've spoken for about uh, five minutes about this topic and you haven't really mentioned digital or technology too much at all. Um Yeah. Well I mean I could go into the depths of it. Uh, we were a hardware device, so we built a hardware device ourselves. You know, we, we 3D printed it. We did all the electronics, the soldering, you know, uh, enclosed it, shipped it, and, and, and shipped it across the world to, you know, I think we ended up building 30 devices in the end. So they're in Australia, the UK, uh, the US, Canada, uh, Philippines, um, and some of them are still, like, some people are still using them today. Um, 
but ultimately, as I said, like that was that was not where we believe the the the, the future was or the future is or like the actual real problem exists. Um, but yeah, no, that that was version one of the products, and I feel that's probably where this conversation was uh, was at least plugged earlier. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I I think we'll get onto the technology side of things and and that debate um, shortly. But I'm just intrigued by your um, attitude. I'm not sure what you call it, but the, you're you're conveying what I think might be what other entrepreneurs convey, and that is a pure passion for their mission at this point in time. And you obviously have a fantastic uh, grasp of the brief, um, even though it's not necessarily something you were trained in from the beginning. Um, is, that, is there an ad- entrepreneurial attitude? that uh, is, is, is that something you recognize in others when you, you see that, that they're completely obsessed about solving something or, or changing the world in some way? Is that what it is? I don't... Yeah. Um, I guess me, you know, me, me and Andrew always said, despite us being engineers, and it's a very engineering thing to, to do, is to be obsessed with the solution. Um, that was, it, it's not what you should do, and it's certainly not what you should do in healthcare. Um, so I think always in our minds, we're always just trying to look at it from if I was the patient, like what what do I want? What do I need? Obviously, it's extremely difficult for you know a, a, a late twenties individual who's you know large extent perfectly healthy to put himself in that place. So it just requires you to to talk to a lot of people in the space, both in the clinical sides so of doctors, pulmonologists, respiratory nurses, um, uh, nurses as well, general nurses as well. Um, uh, and then as well, of course, the patients themselves and just try to understand like how they get through their day. And I think, I don't know, I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably, it, it does become an obsession. It definitely does become an obsession and it, and you just end up being like, if I don't, if I don't know something about the space, you just become obsessed with trying to find out like that piece of information, you know? I think what you're, you're trying to say is that the solution isn't going to come out of your head alone, even though you're 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 totally fixated on the domain, and that you're very much acknowledged that you need to talk to experts in that field to get their input across the board, and even though you might feel intuitively there's the solution is inside you, and you've got to kind of yeah take these inputs and and you're open to that, which is really interesting. You want to learn from others. Yeah, oh, hundred percent. Like, just just pretend. Like, honestly, just pretend you're dumb. I mean, like most times, I get on a call. I'm just like, pretend I don't know anything, and just like tell me your perspective. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I naturally, it's extremely difficult for me to be like that. Uh, so this is not something that I would say I naturally have. Um, in the sense of when I was younger, it's something that I've like worked on actively. I would say to try just have that humility just be like I don't know anything just tell me um but I would say as well the there is always that part of you that you have to find your descent to what they all believe in because ultimately they probably haven't nothing has been built in this space if you're actually pursuing something new no one's actually ultimately built something that you believe should exist and so talking to all these people they're not going to tell you the solution either it's about sort of taking all these little data points um scattered throughout and making your own sort of deductions from that and i think for us you know we overly weight the patients um say in it because historically that hasn't been the case it has been very much doctor driven solutions so 
you know, doctors decide on really what their solutions look like. Whereas specifically for digital tools where um, retention and engagement is often the problem, you know, they might actually work, but people just don't use them. You have to over index for that. You have to get in, understand why aren't they using these existing solutions and how can you build something that they will. So we're touching on real innovation, invention in a gap area, um, an area that hasn't been addressed. Um, and it's it's a tricky area, med tech, isn't it? Uh, both hardware and software seems like there are huge barriers to entry. Yeah. Um, it's a question I ask myself most days. When I say, Ignorance is bliss, oh, right? No, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, me personally, um, I've always been interested in health. Like when I was really young, I wanted to be a doctor. So I was always very interested in, in actually helping people. But I think when I always wanted to end up in healthcare in some capacity, but not on a, on the ground capacity, like not being in a ward or, you know, in a clinic, more high level, because personally, that's probably where I can think, believe I can generate the most value. We, you know your limits, right? Oh, yeah, I think, yeah, I know, I definitely do. Yeah, I know from a, like, I would get too involved if I was living on a ward, or if I was working on a ward from an emotional point of view, whereas, you know, we do slightly have that advantage of being a bit abstracted away that, you know, you're not seeing, you're not seeing some of these things on a daily basis. But, um, but sorry, yeah, c- coming back, like, why would you pick it? Always wanted to get in to health. Um, yes, health tech is, there's barriers everywhere between like who's going to pay the regs. Hardware has its own problems as well. Um, and then, yeah, especially then layer on top of the fact that neither me and Andrew are, are, are doctors or have, have that medical clout. And definitely as, as, as being an uphill battle, you know, from the start, like it's, it's always something you're going to be questioned on. Um, but, you know, luckily we, we have a great team there and, and I guess, um, do, I, would, would I go into it if I knew everything now? Yeah, I, I probably still would. Yeah, because I don't think anything's easy. You know, you pick some perceived easy route or easy business or easy sector, and it's got its own problems, I guess. And of course, you've got that personal connection, which is really a, a huge motivator. Yeah, definitely. Because I think even, even that, especially in the early days, when you were sort of waning on like, what are we doing? Or even right here, and you maybe you'd have that sounding board of being like getting on a call and being like, this is what we're thinking. And you know, that you might be like, that's absolutely the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like no one is ever going to use that. I'm never going to use that uh, from a patient point of view or, you know, he gets the product in his hand and he's like, Oh my God, like you guys are actually onto something. Like I really like this. This is something I would use. So let's wind the clock back a bit. There's an article way back when Mark Andreessen, um, wrote this article, Why Software is Eating the World. And it caused a bit of commentary at the time because it was basically saying software is everything. Software is more profitable. There's less in upfront investment. The, the, the bang is bigger for your buck. Um, and you were in a hardware play at the time. Uh, you've since moved. Can you talk a little about the challenges you had working in a hardware plus software space and your decisions to move mainly towards the software side now? Yeah, I call it I call it hard, uh, software enabled hardware because you definitely have hardware that doesn't have much software. I mean, you might have a chip on it; it's running, but it's not necessarily connected or it's not ancillary. Like the hardware is the main thing, whereas ours was always essentially just a sensor. Like you were getting that sensor, and and the value was the interpretation of that data, let's say on the phone. Um, so we were definitely hardware enabled um, software. But yeah, I guess 
Hardware, <laughs> um, it's definitely easier than it was. Like, that's for sure. I mean, you've 3D printers, like we have 3D printers, um, you know, we could print our device and assemble it and do all the electronics and stuff. It would take a long time when you're doing that in, you know, your apartment, um, but it's possible and you can do that sort of iterative building. Whereas before, you know, you would sort of have to guess, is this something that's going to work? Then get a tooling done up for it, which is going to cost you, you know, 20, 30 grand. Um, then get someone to actually injection mold that, someone to do, well, maybe you've done the electronics, but you have to get someone to do the PCB and assemble it and everything. Like you're looking at back in the day, a couple hundred K just to get, you know, a small production run of something going. Whereas nowadays you could probably do it for 10 K, maybe less, probably less actually. Um, so hardware has become more like software with uh, 3D printing and small batch and maybe in-house production absolutely i mean even nowadays you could get one-off pieces built and shipped to your home um now you know that they're doing not done in resin printers they sort of work out a bit expensive sometimes but like everything if there's demand there and it's technology based like the cost is going to come down so you're probably going to see by 2030 like the cost of getting some 3d uh, cad drawing or whatever that you've done up like to your house is going to be like euros not hundreds of euros and certainly not hundreds of thousands of euros, which it was, you know, not that long ago. So actually, software is eating the world. The hardware is becoming even more software-like. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say that's just a natural progression of, I mean, it's sort of as well the pushing of our understanding, our application of like basic physics and chemistry. Uh, and like, how do you actually commercialize all those learnings that we've we have accumulated over the years? And like, that's been the the result of, 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 of these investments, like even look, like look at the, the microchip, like that's, you know, that's, that's a graft to get to get over the last like 40, 50 years to get it to the size that it is. Um, but obviously now we're coming to the limits of, uh, of physics, uh, on that one. And, uh, and yeah, you're probably looking at how do we, how do we, how do we exponentially grow that via software? What are you seeing in the investment environment? for startups are businesses going their own way do they need the outside money so much um yeah that's a good question um well i would be pretty i have my own view on this and i think like you know there even within the term of startups you got to sort of segment it down into like well what type of business is it like most companies that you see especially label across news uh, about raising big rounds like they're not actually tech companies they're actually just tech enabled businesses like they're not building some underlining new technology and i think this is something that we discussed uh previously to this call alan but like technology is really hard like new technology is really hard and it's 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 uh payback period is obviously can potentially be like never but it's often quite a long time whereas you know, something that is technology enabled, you can pretty much just spin it up and, and try make money immediately. Um, so I think there's still, there's still a lot of capital for that. Um, I think there always will be if you, if you can find some sort of problem that you can deliver more efficiently through, through the use of technology, I think you'll, you'll always be able to, you'll always be able to raise off that. But then like on the technology side, you know, or, you know, deep tech, which is really what it's just thrown under, like the likes of, you know, driverless technology, anything with ML, anything to do with, you know, nuclear, 
um, um, quantum. quantum microbiology, like all that sort of stuff where you're actually trying to figure out new science. A large part of that has always been government-led in the early days. In, in Europe, you have the, you've the luxury of the EIC, which is a sort of venture arm of the European Commission. Um, and then, um, and then angel money as well, you know, people who are, who are nearly from a philanthropic point of view, throwing money on it because it's something that they believe in. And obviously if it pays off, there's a great service to themselves from a financial point of view, but also to the world. And people obviously will have quite a high attachment to that. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of institutional money in their nowadays, in the early days, certainly is, is not investing in technology. They're investing in, in service, in technology led businesses. That's interesting that uh, I get a sense that in the venture capital community or market, let's say, that of a, of a thousand VCs, maybe 10 will look at hardware because the other 990 are looking at these quick win software plays. Yeah. And like, you know, I actually, did, I think I did a post on this like last week. I mean, it's up to the founder to understand like how this capital, how this source of capital actually works, you know, like. People nowadays think they need to raise VC, but at the end of the day, like they actually don't. You can bootstrap a company, you can get family and friends, you can go to family offices, you can get grants, you can do revenue-based financing. And it's it should be, you know, you should go out and seek what's the best source of finance so that I can grow the business, but also maintain a good ownership. Because, you know, if you're giving money away to VCs, you're often giving away equity, right? Um, and I think, yeah, on that point, it, often these fund structures are over 10 years and they want to return the fund in 10 years, which means they have to deploy the capital probably in four to six years. Uh, and so if you're saying, if you're sitting there and you're a scientist and you're saying, you know, here's a, uh, what I believe is a, is a new way to do, is a new is an actual way to achieve you know, nuclear fission or whatever. Uh, and you're like, okay, like, you know, how long is it going to take? It's like, oh, well, you know, we should do the science maybe in six years, seven years. And then, you know, a couple of years of regs and blah, blah, blah. You know, it means you're just going to be like, wait, what? No way. I'm not interested in this. So it's not necessary that the people behind it are are um, are against the ideas, but they're under their own time pressure if they have to return the fund in 10 years, you know. Um, and thus your uh, point that the long-term sort of infrastructure, the new technology is really backed by government um, uh, agencies, isn't it? That's where the real risk venture is coming from. Uh, yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. And, and even I guess even within the venture capital world as well, uh, it depends on country. Absolutely. But a lot of countries as well, like the VC funds will be have a heavy amount of their committed capital will be some government agency um, will, will have actually, you know, given a chunk of cash as commitment, as matching or whatever to to private investments. So you know, I, I think they certainly do go under the radar, but in, in terms of most, a lot of countries, governments do bear the risk, the financial risk of of, of innovation, um, which ultimately is obviously us, us at the end of the day, taxpayers. And, but as well, I mean, sorry, that's to say like, you know, that's only one form of capital. You know, it's always, you always have to remember like VC is only one form of capital that you can access. Um, you know that's not necessarily every how every how every um how every source operates. Uh, how does Ireland do in the uh, startup, small venture, new venture stage? Um, uh, I would say we punch above our weight in everything but this. Could there be better tax incentives? Like absolutely. Um, could there be better investors in this space? Like absolutely. I think yeah, Ireland 
needs to sort this out or you're continuously going to see people seeking capital elsewhere. And when people seek capital elsewhere, maybe not so much after COVID, the likelihood is where, they, where they're getting the capital is where they'll also, also pursue the market. And so you're going to see, continue to see knowledge flight. You're going to continue to see like valuation flight because if, if companies are based elsewhere and not based in Ireland. So I think sorting out, you know, idea to series A should be like top of the mind for, for the ecosystem uh, because we have the knowledge. We certainly have, like we have the talent. We definitely have the ambition. Um, but until like, you know, that, that is, that is sorted. It's, it's just, and it has to be private led. That's the other thing. Every sort of functioning early stage system is private led. And obviously we have EI, which is great, but their mandate is to be, is for the industry to go private led. They're not going to lead it. And so, um, yeah, over the next six, over the next couple of years, like that, that really has to be figured out. Okay, and you're just coming out of the uh, NDRC Accelerator um, for 2022, aren't you? Yeah, we did the first cohort, so we uh, sort of graduated, graduated, yeah, a couple of months ago, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really hoping for uh, good things for you to come out of it, and um, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, in the next, I guess, in the, so that, the sort of, um, the 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 change in tact, the pivot that, that I sort of described around the, the mental health side of, of, of treating these conditions is, is something that, you know, it's quite new what we've done. Um, it's only in the last like two months that we've actually made that made that decision. And it required us to sort of rework the product, go back out to, you know, we've sort of built like quite a sizable community um, of people who suffer from this online. And, and you know, it, it feels like we're pushing the boulder down the hill a bit more than pushing it up. Um, so there's good reception on the product. I think now over the next couple of months, it's it's um, it's starting out. You know, what does now our, our B2B strategy look like with this new product? Because it certainly it opens up a lot more different channels versus what our, our sort of previous solution had been. Um, and then of course, you know, always raising. So we're probably going to be raising another round towards the end of the year. Um, and so armed with that, you know, it's it's proving out that our product works from a clinical point of view proving that we can get users and then and then eventually proving that we can acquire, acquire the B2B route as well. Right, well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on um, starting up, on being an entrepreneur. Absolutely, pleasure. Really fun, Alan. Thank you for listening and sharing this episode. The music is dismantled by Ben Pronti and used with his permission.